Hello, this is Jennifer Matteris. And before I get started on the bulk of the podcast, the first thing that I wanted to do before I got started was to say kind of a little bit of an apology. I normally get these episodes done within about two weeks, given all the research and everything that I have to do around a full-time job. It can be a little difficult. And I did plan on having this episode done in about two weeks, but I had a little bit of a stomach bug, and with the July 4th holiday, things kind of got a little busy. So I hope that I didn't disappoint anybody by not getting this episode out a little sooner, and I hope that you accept my apology, such as it is. Um, Another thing that I wanted to do is say another thank you to M.A., who supports the podcast on Patreon and made the suggestion for this particular episode. I had never heard of this uh, disaster before, as as I said in a previous episode, and I found it really interesting. I had a lot of fun researching it, so um, if you can have fun researching podcasts uh, about disasters, which I do... um, but again, thank you to MA for that. Um, and if you want to help support the podcast, you can always do so through Patreon. And you can also do so by tossing a little money in the tip jar by sending money through PayPal. Um, our PayPal address is disasterarea at mail.com. And it really helps out. It helps with things like um, I'm trying to build a website for the podcast. That helps. Um, it, you know, making sure that I can get the episodes staying up on SoundCloud, that sort of thing. You know, so so little things like that, research materials, all those kind of things. You know, right now it's it's out of pocket or, you know, those sorts of things. So a little bit here and there always helps. And then the last couple of things that I wanted to do was, again, um, more apologies. Um, a little bit of preemptive apologies. Let's put it that way. Um, the first is that I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not completely um, scientifically uh, inept, but I'm not uh, really very well versed in uh, nuclear science, radioactivity, that sort of thing. So um, while I might have an easier time explaining why a plane would crash, I have a little bit of difficulty with. Um, radioactivity and, and, and nuclear science and all of the things that are involved in this particular disaster. Um, it did feel a, a little bit like Tony Stark in the Avengers when he's asked, you know, when did you become an expert on quantum physics? And he says last night, that was me and this. So, um, bear with me. Um, if I screw anything up science wise, I, I do apologize. Um, I'm just kind of going off what I'm reading and what I'm um, researching. And so whatever, um, I, um, screw up is entirely my fault. Um, related to that, another preemptive apology. Um, I, I kind of, maybe what I feel a little more guilty about, I do, I love languages and I, I am trying to learn, um, more than one, uh, Duolingo is our friend. Um, and while I do have experience with, um, Spanish and German and, and Swedish, I don't really have a, a lot of experience or any experience with Portuguese. So if I mispronounce anything, it's because I just have more experience with Spanish. So uh, things are going to come out sounding a lot more Spanish than they probably should. Um, Related to that, um, I know in regards to um, 
this sort of culture, you know, there's, there's multiple names and, and different surnames and that sort of thing, maternal names and all that. And, and I'm not being dismissive of that of all it, of that at all, excuse me, but in regards to news stories and reports and that sort of thing, um, a lot of these particular um, news stories, particularly when they're in English and translated through sort of an anglicized eye, don't include all of the names or they get the names wrong. And I kind of, um, for some of these names, um, I, you know, I can't really be too sure. And at a certain point of this episode, I am going to start referring to the people evolved by their first names. Again, not to be dismissive of the culture at all, or, um, you know, it's not through any sort of um, mistake on my part, hopefully. Um, but the thing is that at a specific point when we're dealing with the people involved, a lot of the surnames and related names are the same, and the first names are all different. So to make it a little easier for you and I to be able to differentiate them, I'm going to be referring to them by the first name. And with that, I would like to say thank you for listening. This is Jennifer Metteris and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 11, The Goyanya Accident, September 13th, 1987, four deceased, over 100,000 affected. At first glance, The Goyanya Accident reads like the most deadly episode of world's dumbest criminals ever. But that's just on the surface. Once you start reading all of the information about the case, about the disaster, it becomes clear that it's a bit more complex than that. These two thieves who started the ball rolling, or at least seem to have started the ball rolling, were not completely to blame. And to be honest, we're not mostly to blame. There's a bigger picture here, and we're about to get into it. Now, the Guayana accident happened, surprisingly enough, in Guayana. Guayana is a city in Brazil. It is the capital of the state of Goyas. Uh, Goyas itself is, I believe, it, kind of in the middle of Brazil. Um, if you look at a picture of Brazil, Guayana is kind of in the middle, like, I guess where a belt buckle would be if you looked at it. That was kind of the way that I thought of it as I was looking at the map. Um, the city itself is about the size of Dallas or San Diego, population-wise. It's relatively not that far away from Brasilia, which, as you might know, is the capital of Brazil. The area itself grew kind of from a history of agriculture. And so around the city, there's a lot of cattle ranches and cereal farms. It's, it's very, you know, um, very rural. And, and, and um, then you get into the city and you have this city, which, you know, it does have some very nice locations in it, but there's a very wide gap financially and educationally between the rich and the poor in Guayana. 
one article that I saw kind of described it, it, you know, you have this very small middle class and then you have the rich and you have the poor and it's kind of this wide gap between the two. And so, um, you have, uh, these, rich people who have a lot of money and really good education and then you have a lot of poor people who you know they don't really have a good education they don't have a lot of money so they do what they can to survive and so they're um maybe doing some things that aren't particularly legal and may not be particularly safe the major location in this uh scenario is the instituto goyano de radioterapia with, or the IGR, as it's referred to in a lot of this documentation. There's a, there's a lot of acronyms in this documentation, so bear with me. Um, the IGR was a private radiotherapy institute owned by a medical partnership. It was about three doctors and then um, other um, medical staff. And they worked out of this building that had facilities for teletherapy, which utilized cesium-137 and cobalt-60, which are both radioactive. In July 1971, the National Nuclear Energy Commission, which is referred to in, as CNEN in the documentation, um, you know, obviously translated to Portuguese, the letters switch around a little bit, um, they allowed for the Institute to import the cesium-137 source in this case, it, which was in a teletherapy unit. Uh, the unit itself was a model designed by a Berezetian company of Milan, Italy in the 1950s. And the source uh, on the inside of, of this teletherapy unit was thought to have been produced at the Oak Ridge National Lab in the U.S. in about 1970. So all of these pieces kind of coming together to build this teletherapy unit, which had, uh, you know, kind of a radioactive center. Um the unit's uh, radiation head was attached to the machine uh, and it had an aperture at the bottom to be focused on the patient. So it's kind of like a, a camera. You have to picture sort of a big rectangular box, um, which I imagine would have been over, um, which you would have, you know, kind of rolling a gurney over to. And this radiation head was it was, it, I, I want to say spherical, but it's a little more complicated than that. You had this aperture at the bottom, which would face down toward the, um, toward the patient. And this radiation head, which was kind of rounded, aperture at the bottom, a little bit of a point on one end, would be rotated around the, the patient to kind of be focused on whichever um, part of them uh, needed that particular treatment. The machine itself, um, uh, the, the radiation source capsule, excuse me, was located inside this radiation head. So the radiation is this little thing that is inside this rounded metal object. The source capsule would be aligned with the aperture and uh, using a shutter mechanism and then reset to the off position after an exposure. So it's just like taking a picture. It would spin around, um, this little window would open, you'd be exposed, and then it would close. The uh, source wheel in which the capsule would turn was surrounded by a shielding plug. So basically everything inside this radiation head is set up so it will spin it around 
at the same time that it's protecting you from the radiation. The source capsule itself had a diameter of 50.6 millimeters. The source inside it uh, was a diameter of 36.3 millimeters. The window diameter was 30.2 millimeters. And the window itself had a thickness of one millimeter, only one millimeter. I mean, if you get out a, a, a uh, excuse me, a ruler, and you look at a ruler and you look at one millimeter, that's how much glass or plastic is between that radioactive source and the fresh air. Keep that amount in mind, one millimeter. That's going to come in important later on. Now, the source itself is surrounded by internal and external capsules of stainless steel with this cesium-137 core inside it. There's, you know, two layers of protection basically keeping this core from being exposed. The terms under which the IGR received this were very specific to prevent anybody from um, misplacing it or, or, or from having this cesium-137 core fall into the wrong hands. You know, obviously it's, it's radioactive, it can make people sick, it can even kill people, and so it has to um, be specifically maintained. The terms basically were that a, physici a physicist and a physician the uh, physician had to be one of the partners of this medical practice, would be responsible for ensuring that the CNEN's requirements for the source were carried out. So every detail, every demand that they had for the safety of this equipment had to be carried out. And the one of the partners, at the very least, had to make sure that this was carried out. One of those terms was that any significant change in the equipment or the facilities needed to be reported to CNEN. But at the end of 1985, the IGR moved out of the building in question. But they did not remove the CCM-137 teletherapy unit. The, they did have a Cobalt-60 unit, as I mentioned. Uh, it was uh, taken with them and moved to their new facilities. But the CCM-137 unit stayed uh, uh, partially because, um, or at least mostly because, it really, you know, it's kind of foggy at this point. Basically what happened is when these, um, this medical partnership kind of um, changed or, or uh, broke up or, you know, what kind of happened behind the scenes, no matter what happened, they moved buildings. And in the process, they um, fell into a legal dispute with the owners of the property so the ownership of the contents of the clinic started to be disputed in court. IGR and the Society of Saint Vincent de Paul, who were the owners of the property, were debating in court what would happen with the building and what was inside it. Now, on September 11th, 1986, the court of Goyas made a note on the record that they did know that there was existence of radioactive material in this building. 
And on May 4th, 1987, the director of EPASCO, which is a group which would handle insurance for civil servants, he ordered police to keep one of the owners of IGR, Carlos Bezarel, from removing items from the building. Basically, he was he was trying to, and he was confronted by police. So um, Carlos Bezarel at that point told the president of Apasco, "Look, you can take responsible for the quote unquote cesium bomb inside the building." The court at that point ordered a security guard to prevent the owners from entering the building or uh, to prevent um, the, excuse me, to prevent the partners from uh, entering the building. Basically, nobody was going to enter the building. We're going to figure out what's going on in the process. Just leave everything where it is. Uh, at that point, the owners of the IGR contacted the CNN to inform them about the cesium still inside. And also that they could not go inside to remove it. But the thing is that the, the CNN were not informed of the change in circumstances when IGR moved first moved from the building as they should have been. So if you know if this had happened at this point a year ago, that would have been one thing. At this point, actually, it's it's a year and a half. You know, they hadn't told them yet at this point. And so the CNN is still trying to, you know, play and catch up. Basically, this cesium unit is sitting in this building. This teletherapy unit, excuse me, is sitting in this building. And it's kind of, uh, you know, up in the air what is going on, who owns the building, who doesn't own the building, who can go into the building, who can't go into the building. What we do know is that much of the building was being demolished. When you look at pictures of what was left of the building at the time that the accident occurs, it's basically almost nothing left. Um, there's a stone hut, basically, that is that is left of this building. And I mean, there's the windows are gone, and and there's there's no doors on it. And there's a you know there's according to what I read, there's a broken lock. So I mean, really, it for all that they you know said, okay, we're gonna post a security guard in, and nobody's getting into this building. There wasn't really much of of a prevention. Um, the teletherapy rooms themselves were still intact. That was basically what was in this this hut, such as it were. Um, but they were very they were derelict and. Uh, a lot of times vagrants were sleeping in the room. Um, you know, like I said, this is a, uh, an area that is basically a slum. Um, there are a lot of um, very poor people living in the area. And so this is a good place to uh, kind of escape the rains, escape cold, you know, whatever you need to do, just, you know, hide in there as long as the one security guard that they have there isn't there, you're safe to go. Now, on September 13th, 1987, that's when everything kind of changes. There are two thieves, Roberto dos Santos Alves and Wagner Mota Pereira, who I will refer to, as I said previously in the episode, um, as Roberto and Wagner. Uh, Roberto had heard rumors that there was valuable equipment inside this building. And he gets Wagner, Wagner and he tells him. So Roberto and Wagner decide they're going to break in 
and they're gonna steal some of this equipment and they're gonna make a little money. These are two very poor men and you know, selling these kind of scrap metal, these scrap pieces to a junkyard can make them a few bucks, you know, pay for rent, pay for food, whatever they really need it for. At one point, the guard leaves his post and the pair take this opportunity and use his departure to enter this small concrete hut that's left of the building where the unit was being held. They find the teletherapy unit, which, like I said, is a pretty big unit, um, and they start to dismantle it to at least take apart this big container to try and take as much of it with them as they can. They end up succeeding in removing the rotating assembly head, which is that big round thing. The shiny casing of this thing, you know, it appeared valuable. It looked like they could take this, you know, it's, it's stainless steel. They can take this, they can sell it for a few bucks, make a little extra money. Later on, um, there would be no contamination found at the clinic. Part of the reason being, at that point, it was basically safe. They really hadn't taken you know, what was, um, you know, the whole part of this, um, apart. They had just taken this rotating assembly out of the rotating head and that was it. They hadn't broken it open. They hadn't disturbed the source itself. So they take this rotating assembly, which is inside the rotating head, and they place this assembly in a wheelbarrow. At this point, they take it to Roberto's home, which is about a half kilometer away from the building. Once they get to Roberto's home, they start trying to take this rotating assembly apart. Figure they can take it apart and take these pieces, break it down. They start beginning to feel nauseous almost... Um, almost, I mean, very quickly, as soon as, almost as soon as they, they get it home and start, start working on it. But they dismiss it as something they ate. They do later on kind of, I, th I think, I think it's only later on that it occurs to them that they saw the, the three little black rectangles that we all sort of recognize as this is radioactive on it, but they really kind of didn't, um, they kind of dismissed it. I, th I think that's sort of a, a kind of a human reaction. You know, it's, it, I don't want to say that, you know, stealing radioactive equipment is a, is a human reaction, but kind of um, not, you know, kind of dismissing it as, uh, you know, oh, it's nothing serious. It's nothing serious and, and until it is. The next day, September 14th, Wagner realizes, uh, you know, he's got, he's got diarrhea and he's, he's starting to feel dizzy. Uh, one of his hands is swollen with edema, and he, it develops a burn the same size and shape as the aperture on the assembly. So, you know, obviously at this point, it, you know, he's not feeling good and something's wrong. But at the same time, Roberto is still at his home trying to break into this assembly. On September 15th, Wagner goes to a, a local clinic and they diagnose him with food poisoning. So he goes and he stays home for a week and he rests. At this time, about uh, September 18th, 
Roberto is at his home with this rotating assembly. By this time, he's taken the rotating assembly out of his house and moved it onto the ground under a mango tree in his garden. And he's been attempting to break it open to see what's inside. At this point, on, on, this, on September 18th, he manages to puncture the one millimeter thick window of the source and scoop out some of the source material. He sees this stuff and it's, and it's, it's blue. It's this very pretty blue. And he attempts to light it like gunpowder, but doesn't light. He succeeds in removing the source wheel at um, this point. And, and there's a quote um, that he gives in a, in a later interview um, where I, I'm not exactly sure um, if it was in, you know, at, the, at what point in the process it was that he, he's describing, but he basically said, when we broke open the cylinder, a little capsule the size of a matchbox fell out. So, you know, that's what you're talking about. That's how big this thing is that he kind of broke into. At this point, he takes these pieces to a junkyard owner, uh, Dever Alves Ferreira, who I will call Dever. The pieces that he takes to Dever are placed in a wheelbarrow, and one of Dever's employees takes them and places them in a garage on the property. So Roberto takes his money, he goes home, and now this um, Devere has these pieces. Now this next part of the story reads a lot like a scene in a horror movie or in a sci-fi movie. Devere is at his home. His home is right next to his junkyard. Um, he's in his home, and he walks out that night and goes to this garage. And when he goes in the garage to where these pieces are being kept, he sees a blue glow coming from this source capsule. He walks into this garage, and there's this blue glow. It's a, it's a very pretty blue glow. It's it's um, it's been described. It's being described as very very beautiful. And, you know, much like in a lot of these sci-fi stories, when you walk in and you find, you know, whatever alien thing that you find in there that's glowing or, or moving or whatever it's doing, um, his first thought is, this may be valuable. I may be able to make some money off this. And his second thought is, it might even be supernatural. It might be magical. And again, the first reaction, you know, you kind of feel like, you know, you kind of feel like that's a naive thing to think. But, you know, when you think about it in a more, you know, kind of, you put yourself in his place. And what else is he supposed to think? You know, what what is he supposed to look at that and think, this is radioactive, I should run? Um, he really, you know, he really kind of looks at it and trying to kind of thinks of it in, in the best possible life light, which is I can make money off this and it might even be good luck. So at this point, he takes the source capsule and he brings it into his home. 
he lives with his wife, Gabriela, Maria Ferreira, Gabriela. And over the next three days, he and his wife allow these friends, relatives, neighbors, etc., to come over to the home and see this oddity. Um, they uh, keep it in the house. And these people come over and you know, they come over and they look. It's this thing that glows and it's blue and it doesn't seem to be dangerous. Nobody's, you know, nobody's dropping dead from the side of it. So, you know, they just keep looking at it and touching it and, and, oh, you know, there's a crack in it. You know, there's, you know, look at this and it makes this pretty blue light. On September 24th, a friend of DeVere's, uh, whose name I couldn't find and in the International Atomic Energy Agency report, he's listed as EF1. He removes some of the grains from the inside of the source with a screwdriver. So basically reaches in, pulls some of these grains out, these bright blue grains. Devere begins to share these grains with other people. And like I said, they're this pretty blue, they glow. And so people start, you know, they start playing around with them. <clears throat> they start painting them on their skin like body glitter. Um, they paint crosses on their shirts with it, or they use it as fluorescent makeup. And, you know, like I said, you kind of, I mean, in retrospect, it seems kind of dumb. It seems, you kind of want to say, you know, what are you doing? You know, you kind of, you're screaming at these people, it, you know, for, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, what are you doing? But what this particular part of the story makes me think of is the Radium Girls. If you've never heard of the Radium Girls, back in the early 1900s, when Radium was first discovered, it was considered... um you know, because it was an element, that it was natural and therefore it was safe or even good for you. So what they would do is they would um, start putting it in different things. They put it in toothpaste, they put it in water, they put it in um, food, and they put it in clothing. And the thing about radium, of course, with it glowing, is that they were putting it in paint. And the radium girls were women who worked in a factory in New Jersey in around 1917. And their job was to paint these watch dials with self-luminous paints infused with radium. And because it was considered to be safe, and of course, if it wasn't safe and pro probably good for you, then you, of course, you, pro you would be getting sick and you're not getting sick and you're not dropping dead where you stand. So they would do things like paint their faces with it, paint on eyeliner, paint their teeth with it because it was supposed to be safe. And what they, when they would paint their teeth with it, they would go home and see their boyfriends and smile and their teeth would glow. They were kind of taught the whole time that they could take the brushes and, and kind of put them in their mouths to get a finer point on them. And in the process, they're ingesting all this radium. And after a while, they begin to suffer the ill effects of this, including quote-unquote radium jaw, which is basically necrosis of the jaw. Um... It you know it kind of is debilitating and and just how terrible this is. Um, the uh, documentary The Poisoner's Handbook, which is an episode of American Experience, talks about these girls, and uh, they talk about how one doctor for one of these women 
was able to reach into the mouth of the woman and just hook her jaw right out of her mouth and take it out. That's how badly her jaw had necroticized or necrosized or I'm, I apologize. I'm, I'm not really getting that's how necrotic her jaw was. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, I don't want to laugh because it's, it's not funny, but just it, that's how bad it was. Um, there's also a, a golfer whose name I, I can't recall, but, um, he had gotten ill and, and they had infused uh, water with radium at the time and it was supposed to be a, a cure-all tonic and his doctor told him to drink it and he just kept drinking all this radium water and there was a, a Wall Street Journal article about him that I think the, uh, the headline was something like the radium water worked fine until his jaw fell off, which kind of gives you an idea of what this radium was doing to people. At the time, five of the women sued their employer in in a, in a landmark case for those who contract occupational diseases. But you know, in the aftermath, you had, um, and they and they didn't end up winning, I believe. But at the same time, you know, the 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 um uh, the employers afterwards saying things like, you know, well, that's our fault for hiring you know sickly women in the first place or something. It was something like that. It was it was really dismissive. But that's kind of attitude you have um you know in this particular scenario i mean you don't really have all the information and if you're not dropping dead right then and there you think okay well this is safe i'm fine i'll be okay you know there's you know it, it might even be good for me you know and this you know you kind of talk yourself out of it but very quickly, um, things started to go awry. Um, Devere's wife, Gabriella, began to fall ill. She, much like Wagner, she started to develop vomiting and diarrhea. Uh, she was taken to Sao Lucas Hospital, where she was diagnosed with food poisoning, the same as Wagner. Uh, her mother came uh, to Guayana to stay for two days to nurse her at home. And then the mother departed to her own hometown, away from Guayana, taking contamination with her. On September 22nd, two of Devere's employees, Israel Baptista dos Santos and Edmilson Alves de Souza, uh, started to handle the assembly portion of the equipment over the course of several days in an attempt to extract lead from it. So they were, you know, kind of hovering over this equipment, constantly trying to take it apart. On September 23rd, Wagner, the one of the thieves, is admitted to Santa Maria Hospital. The skin effects of the radiation exposure at that point were believed to be a symptom of some kind of disease. And so he was transferred on September 27th to the Tropi Tropical Diseases Hospital. On September 24th, Devere's brother, Ivo, comes over to the house. And he scrapes some of the source out and takes those scrapings home to his home, which is also next to a junkyard. He has, you know, he, here he is, he has these blue scrapings and he takes them and to show off how they glow, he spreads them out on the concrete floor of his home. At this point, his six-year-old daughter, Leade, is playing on the floor she kind of puts on some of this powder on her skin is showing her mother you know look look at how it glows and at one point she eats a sandwich while she's sitting on the floor 
getting some of the grains of the, on the sandwich and ingesting them. The grains themselves um, were also placed on the, on the table during a family meal. So here it is, and it's right there where these people are eating. On September 25th, DeVere finally sold these pieces to another scrapyard. So they have moved on. We're now on scrapyard number three. Um, you know, you have DeVere's scrapyard, you have the scrapyard over at Ivo's house, and then you have this third scrapyard. On September 26th, an employee at the junkyard next to Ivo's home identified as KS in the IAEA report brings another person with him and they go into the IGR clinic once again. They remove what's left of the equipment, which weighs about 300 kilograms, and they take it to their junkyard. On September 28th, this is when things come to a head. Now, Gabriella, DeVere's wife, she starts to put two and two together. She has begun to notice that everyone around her is getting sick. She's getting sick, her husband's getting sick, her employees are getting sick, and her niece is getting sick. All these people around her are getting sick. And it all started when this object came into their home. Now, at this point, she is experiencing pretty bad radiation sickness. She would be well within her rights to simply call the police or get one of her employees or whatever to um, say, look, somebody else needs to do something about this. I think this thing is harming my family, is harming my friends. We need to do something about it. And she would still be the hero of the story for realizing this is what's going wrong. But instead, what Gabriella did, this woman who helped her husband run this successful junkyard, who was, you know, seemed to be a very, um, a very strong woman, she gets up out of bed and she gets one of her husband's employees and the two of them go over to the scrapyard, the third scrapyard. And they say, look, we need those pieces. We need them now. They're making people sick. Give them to us. So the third scrapyard takes those pieces that DeVere sold to them and they place them in a plastic bag. Gabriella and the employee take this plastic bag and they get on a bus and they head over to a hospital called the Vigilancia Sanitaria. Because these pieces are in a plastic bag, um, they do not contaminate the things around them like they would otherwise, thankfully, on this bus. Um, on the way to the hospital, the employee was actually carrying the bag on his shoulder, and he'd later develop a significant radiation burn there and receive a dose of uh, 3.0 grays. Um, grays are kind of, you know, a measurement of radioactivity, um, radioactive um, 
kind of basically basically um that's a measure of the level of the dosage if you get sort of a whole um uh, a whole body dose of high radiation um that is five grays you will more than likely die within 14 days so that's a pretty significant dose that he gets just from carrying that bag Gabriella and the employee go to the Vigilancia Sanitaria and they walk in and they go to this doctor whose uh, whose name I couldn't find. He's listed in the um, International Atomic, Agency, uh, Atomic Energy Agency report as WF, as is everybody in that, um, uh, everybody in the report is referred to by their initials uh, for privacy reasons. And um, they go to WF, this this doc, this physician, and um, excuse me, it's not WF, it's PM. Uh, and they go to PM, um, the doctor, and they place this bag on his desk, and they say, and she says, "Look, oof, this thing is making everybody I know sick. It's making me sick. You have to do something about this. It is killing my family." Those are her her words. This is killing my family. At this point, um, the doctor, the doctor would leave the the bag on his desk for a while, uh, but he became worried, and so he takes the bag and he, and he puts it on a chair by the external wall of the hospital. Uh, the chair is out in this courtyard. He he puts it against an uh, an outside wall of the hospital, and he puts this plastic bag on there. And he leaves it there. And it actually is there for a whole day. He initially thought this this piece that they had in this, in, it, you know, these pieces they had in this plastic bag were, were x-ray machine equipment. And just from handling all of this and dealing with all this, he ended up receiving a dose of 1.3 grays, which pretty low one due to the source being in a plastic bag. Gabrielle and the employee, on the other hand, are sent to a health center where they ended up being diagnosed with a tropical disease, and they were sent to the same tropical diseases hospital where, at this point, other victims are already already being sent, including Wagner. Uh, a doctor at the, the tropical diseases hospital started to realize that the lesions that he was seeing were more likely radiation sickness than a a um kind of an expression of of some sort of of uh, a, a symptom excuse me of of, of uh, some kind of tropical disease and at this point he starts you know it starts kind of becoming um uh, kind of a, a doctor game of telephone you know he calls one doctor and says i think something's going on here and and they call another doctor he speaks with the doctor at at the um vigilancia sanitaria and uh, so on and so forth until by the next day, September 29th, um, they are can kind of converging on uh, a visiting medical physicist at the Vigilancia Sanitaria, who this is WF in the in the report. WF um, hears about this and, and um, early in the morning uh, he goes to Nuclebras, which is a government agency dealing with the nuclear fuel cycle. He gets there at about 8 a.m. to retrieve a scintillometer 
which measures ionizing radiation and confirms the presence of radioactivity. Um, so he goes, he goes to the offices of Nuclebras. Um, he gets this scintillometer. He leaves their offices with the scintillometer and he starts heading towards the Vigilancia Sanitaria. And he starts getting closer and he switches it on a, a ways away from the Vigilancia Sanitaria. But even though he was far away, this scintillometer goes full scale regardless of where he pointed it. Now, his first thought was that this is a defective scintillometer. I have to take it back. So he turned around and he goes back to the Nuclebras offices. He gets the replacement. As soon as he walks out the door of these offices, he turns it back on again. And at this point, you know, it's going off the charts once again. And he realizes it's not defective. It, it wasn't a defective machine. There is a major radiation source in the area. So he's heading towards the Vigilancia Sanitary. He gets to there and he arrives there at about 10.30 a.m. to find out that the doctor who received the package from Gabrielle in the first place, Dr. P.M., had contacted the fire brigade regarding the package which was sitting out in this courtyard. Uh, it was a good thing that he did arrive at that point because he was then able to stop this fire brigade who were about to pick up the source and throw it in a river needless to say, a pretty bad idea. So at this point, they start evacuating the Vigilancia Sanitaria. And, you know, the fire, the police departments get together, they start, they start getting everybody out of this building. The Dr. PM and WF, the physicist, go to Devere's junkyard. There, they discover levels of radiation that are off the charts they are able to persuade Devere and his family, as well as people in the area, to evacuate. It takes them a little bit of convincing, but they are able to get them out of there. As the authorities start to begin to question people and investigate and, and you know, kind of trace steps backwards to find out what's going on and where this stuff comes from, it quickly becomes clear that the source of the material was likely from the IGR building. Um, the um, International Atomic Energy Agency report has a very detailed timeline of September of September 29th down to you know kind of the time, and they said by about 3 p.m. everybody had kind of they were kind of understanding that's where it came from. Now, at the Tropical Disease Hospital, they're alerted that multiple patients there may actually be suffering from radiation sickness, not some strange tropical disease. So they immediately start separating them from other patients. In Guayas, the uh, Guayana, excuse me, the Secretary of Health orders contaminated persons to be received at the city's Olympic Stadium. They start getting them there and, and um, with the idea that they're going to, um, uh, you know, screen them, treat them if they need to, destroy anything that might need to be destroyed due to contamination, you know, anything like that. Now, in the process of investigating and questioning people and trying to find out what exactly had happened through all of this, they found a man who at one point had offered to help 
one of the people involved break up the equipment with an acetylene torch. He contacted WF, who was the medical physicist, and he informed him of what happened to the assembly, where all the pieces had been taken. He really knew a lot of information, was able to say, okay, you need to go here, here, and here. By the end of the night, 22 people were identified at the stadium as having been highly exposed and were separated from the others. Patients who were already at the Tropical Diseases Hospital, they were isolated as well, as I said before. Now, on September 30th, and this is when things are starting to get really kind of confusing, people are waking up in the area to this very confusing scene is areas of the district are cordoned off without warning. You know, imagine you wake up and you go outside and there are places that are, you know, cut off by yellow tape and you're not exactly sure why and nobody will say anything. You know, at this point they're kind of, you know, keeping as much information in as possible to prevent any sort of panic. Personnel from CNEN begin to arrive, and this allows the local authorities to transfer their leadership over to CNN, and they become more support to that particular group as opposed to leading as they were before, you know, kind of saying, look, you know what you're doing, you take the reins. The CNN, excuse me, the CNEN personnel order every contaminated person at the Olympic Stadium to be allowed to shower. Up until that point, they hadn't been allowed to shower. Um, they were afraid that if they showered, the water would be contaminated and go into the water supply, and and um, that would not be a good thing. But the CNEN personnel said that was fine. Um, their clothes were placed in bags to be tested, and the people who were waiting at the stadium um, were to be screened for to be screened for contamination as well. And and at this at this point, people were starting to line up at the stadium. Um, you know, rumors are starting to get out, information is starting to get out, and people are starting to get really scared. And so they want to go and find out and make sure that they have not been exposed. The courtyard at the Vigilancia Sanitaria is an area which is, uh, let me put it this way, um, it, it's a lot easier to describe visually, um, is you have to imagine um, a rectangle, long side down, the top of the rectangle and the right hand side of the rectangle are the outer walls of the Vigilancia Sanitaria. And the bottom of the rectangle and the left side of the rectangle are a concrete wall that encircles this courtyard. So at this point, the, the chair on which this plastic bag full of equipment is sitting is down in the bottom right-hand corner of that rectangle. It's down where that concrete wall meets the uh, meets the wall, the external wall of the Vigilancia Sanitaria. The authorities had to figure out how to get this plastic bag out of there without getting anybody contaminated. And they figured out a way like this. It sounds a little extreme, but considering the circumstances, it probably wasn't. Um, what they did was they had a crane that was on the other side of this concrete wall. 
the crane lifted up a section of sewer pipe over the wall of the courtyard and lowered it down over the chair, this big cylinder over this chair. Then what they did was they take a concrete, they take concrete and they pump it over the wall and they pump it into the pipe, filling it up and covering the chair and the source remnants. And what this all did, you know, you let it dry and you have this big, basically this big concrete cylinder. This reduced the dose rates in the area enough that it could be reopened by early afternoon. And of course, they, once that dried, they could pick that up and, and take that out of there. The doctor at the tropical disease hospital who originally thought he had radiation sickness patients spent the night, actually spent the night at the stadium testing people for exposure. He spent a lot of time there and so did the physicist. He, I mean, he was there as well testing people. Um, what ended up happening was that by the end of September um, 30th, you had 22, 30, 22 further people identified to be suffering from the effects of exposure. 11 were sent to the Tropical Diseases Hospital, which was starting to become um, this sort of gathering place for these these um, affected people. On October 1st, you had 14 people who were in very serious condition, at, you know, obviously at the, the, this Tropical Diseases Hospital. So they were taken to the Marsilio Diaz uh, Navy Hospital in Rio de Janeiro. Of the people who were affected by the uh, by the radiation and who received large doses, four of those people died. One of them was Israel Baptista de Santos, who was one of the workers at Devers Junkyard who um, tried to extract lead from the assembly. He was 22 years old. He received a dosage of 4.5 grays. He ended up dying on October 27th, 1987, after suffering from respiratory and lymphatic complications. Now, Admilson Alves de Souza was 18 years old. He had a dosage of 5.3 grays. And he, he was, had also worked with um, Israel in um, trying to extract lead um, at the junkyard. He died on October 18th after struggling from lung and heart damage and internal bleeding. And then there was Gabriela Maria Ferreira. Um, she was the wife of Devere, 37 years old she was, and she had a dosage of 5.7 grays. What happened um, in regards to her, uh, what really made her dosage so bad was that um, Unlike Devere, who was, you know, he was working all day and he was in and out of the house, you know, working in the junkyard. Um, she was in the house all day. And so she, her, she is in this house for three days with this source. She got a steady dose of this for three straight days. She suffered greatly from multiple symptoms, hair loss, internal bleeding, mental confusion, renal complications. She was falling apart. Uh, she died on October 23rd of septicemia and general infection. And then there was the, um, the most tragic um, loss, and that was Lede Dasneves uh, Ferreira, uh, who was six years old. Uh, she was the niece of Dever and Gabriela. 
she had a dosage of 6.0 grays, which is high enough to be fatal even with treatment. I mean, you, you know, this poor little girl, she had sat on the ground, she had put this, that had this, this powder on it, she put this powder on her skin, it got on something that she ingested, she was basically, I mean, she might as well have, she might as well have swallowed it whole, um, she was so sick at first that she was moved into an isolated room at the hospital, because the staff were afraid to go near her, that's, that's how bad off that she was. Um, Leodet died on October 23rd, 1987 at Marcelio Diaz Navy Hospital in Rio after suffering tremendously from, from many of the same symptoms as Gabriella. She had you know, the hair loss and the internal bleeding, um, the renal complications, all of those sorts of things. She um, was a very pretty girl. I, I saw pictures of her, a very beautiful little girl. Um, she was scheduled to be buried in a common cemetery in Guayana in a fiberglass coffin lined with lead in a concrete casing. All of that to prevent radiation from leaking out of her body into the ground. But on the day of the funeral, that's when things really kind of took a really um, tragic turn. Just, uh, just not even just in, in in death, but just in the course of of what people kind of resorted to. Uh, that day, nearly two thousand people rioted. They tried to block the path to the cemetery with bricks and stones to stop her from being buried in the cemetery just out of fear that her body would contaminate the surrounding land. This poor little girl. She'd been through so much already and they were trying to give her a proper burial and people were just terrified and understandably so. Um, you know, here they were and they had thought that they were safe and this radioactivity had come in, come basically out of, out of, out of nowhere. Um, and the states, um, which I'll I'll get into a little more, you know, had not protected them the way that they thought. So, you know, this was one thing that they thought that they could stop. But the funeral did eventually proceed and, and she was buried despite all that interference. There was an article on the 25th anniversary of the disaster that I read and uh, the Association of CCM-137 Victims, which is a survivor's group in Guyana, said that since those original four deaths in, in 1987, 104 people have died of effects of what happened in Guyana. And 1,600 have been directly affected, you know, medically in some way. At the time when they had been treating people, they had been using Prussian blue, which binds metals in the digestive tract to keep the body from absorbing them to, um, they had administered that to 46 people to uh, try and reduce the effects of the radiation in them. And, and it really did, um, help, uh, uh, help a lot of people, um, to live. Although, you know, those 140, 104 people, it's possible any one of them could have been, uh, affected, you know, could have been treated with this Prussian blue and still ended up um, dying in the end, um, you know, later on down the line. Um, Roberto dos Santos Alves, uh, the one thief, he actually needed his right forearm amputated to prevent the spread of radiation. 
and Wagner Mota Pereira survived, but he also had to have some fingers amputated. Um, there were other people who had been affected kind of like that. There was another brother who actually, um, Odessin, the brother of Deveren and Ivo, who runs the Association of Cesium 137 victims. And he has, um, they show with pictures, he has a very large round swelling on his left hand. And one of his fingers has been, um, amputated. Um, the, the pointer finger has been amputated about halfway down. Um, he, you know, these are, this is how badly these people had been affected by this. Now, Devere Ferreira, who, received a dosage of 7.0 grays. I mean, he, luckily he survived, but I mean, he was very seriously affected. Down the line, he just, uh, so much happened to him. You have him going out and bringing this into his house and it kills his wife. It kills his niece. And he kind of, I don't want to say he had a breakdown, but um, he tried to capitalize on his fame afterwards however he could. He would demand money for interviews. He tried to finagle a meeting with a famous actress, um, but he would end up dying in 1994 of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, Odessin, that third brother, he kind of, he talked about this um, in uh, the interview that I read, he basically said, you know, his, yes, his his death certificate says cirrhosis of the liver, but, you know, what drove him to drink four rum bottles a day? Um, Ivo, the other brother, um, you know, his he died eventually of pulmonary edema, but as Odessin says, what drove him to smoke six packs of cigarettes a day after that? you know, this is, it was, these were people who were depressed and who were, you know, trying to cope and they really were not being supported by the government and, and, and in the way that they probably should have been. The cleanup of the area was huge. Um, you know, with something like that, with something like, um, cesium-137 contamination, I mean, they really had to, uh, do a lot of of cleanup, and when I say cleanup, there's a lot of destruction involved. Um, Eighty five houses had been contaminated. The homes themselves were emptied, and their contents were tested for contamination. At which point, the items were either decontaminated or destroyed. And I mean, you have to imagine these people who were helping to carry out these cleanups. Um, you know, you're going into these houses and you're taking everything out and then you have to go through everything these people own, um, you know, and, and piling it on the front lawn. So you have front lawns covered in like toys and, and pictures and clothing. And, and a lot of this stuff is going to get destroyed because it's been contaminated. That's another thing that's, um, would probably have been giving people a, you know, sort of a mental, a mental smack, such as it were. Um, there was contamination that was also removed from 45 public places like squares and shops and bars. Um, the cesium chloride with the cesium-137, um, it, it's highly soluble in water, and there was a lot of rainfall at the time, so, so they were really worried about that. But the high temperatures dried the ground, and so a lot of this cesium chloride particles that were kind of all over the place 
um, were uh, became airborne like dust, and they started landing on roofs to the point where the roofs of two houses actually had to be removed because they were contaminated. 200 people were evacuated from the area. Um, in the end, they actually ended up having to demolish seven homes, including Roberto's home. Uh, that was actually the worst of it because that was where the capsule had been initially broken open. Exposure rates were so high at Roberto's home that the workers could only be there for short periods of time. They would work a little bit and then they would have to leave. Um, so they'd be, be constantly switching these people out. Topsoil had to be removed from several places, including Roberto's home and Devere's junkyard. They were literally scraping off the entire layer of topsoil to remove this contaminated ground. A lot of these places that had been um, decontaminated and demolished and the topsoil removed, they were covered in concrete to lessen the radioactivity afterwards. It was it it was kind of a, a, a kind of a guess, I guess it was the way it makes it sound in the report is kind of well we'll put down concrete and hopefully that will stop it, not you know we'll put down the concrete and that will stop it. It was hopefully that will stop it. That was kind of the attitude that's in this report. Um, you know, you kind of really can't tell um, down the line. It seems that it did work, but. It kind of seems in the report it's a fingers crossed kind of a thing. Um, over 12,055 gallon drums worth of waste material was disposed of. This includes, you know, victims' possessions that weren't contaminated. So all those pictures, all those toys, all those clothes that they needed to get rid of, they were in these 55-gallon drums. And part of the report by the International Atomic Energy um, Agency is pictures of, of these yellow 55-gallon drums. And there are dozens of them. They are lined up. They are stacked three high. They are, there's, there's, they're all over the place. And, you know, when you look at these, you know, 55 gallon drums, you watch too many movies and you think, you look at them and you think, well, if they're filled with radioactive stuff, it's, you know, radioactive waste or like, you know, um, ooze or something, you know, something, um, chemical, but no, those, 55 gallon drums weren't filled with that sort of thing. They were filled with the topsoil and they were filled with the, you know, photographs and mementos and, and wedding pictures and, and, um, toys. And, and that, these are the things that were going into these 55 gallon drums, which just makes seeing these pictures even more depressing. The waste itself was supposed to be deposited in a 300 meter deep hole in Serra do Cachimbo, uh, Air Force Base in Northeast Brazil. However, once it was discovered by the public, there was a, there was a large religious celebration that was happening near the area, and it suddenly turned into a massive demonstration against the decision. Three, uh, 3,500 cubic meters of waste were then deposited at a location about 20 meters away from, uh, kilometers away from, excuse me, 20 kilometers away from Guayana. So, um, not much better, um, in terms of, uh, getting rid of it. Um, 
a lot of people were still afraid, so the governor of Guayas started spending his weekends near the site to prove that it wasn't dangerous. But the government had lost a lot of trust um, from the populace. The populace kind of saw this as a betrayal of the government who were supposed to be keeping an eye on this sort of thing. You know, it didn't... Here, this... CCM-137 source was carelessly left in the neighborhood in a little small concrete shack in the, you know, in the middle of town, in the middle of a city. And the government had just left it there. Um, And people just were angry and upset. But um, it wasn't just that. I mean, there was a lot of suspicion, not only in the locals, but in people who were outside of the area as well. Um, concerts were canceled. U.S. exchange students were removed from the area. There were two airline pilots who were fired because they refused to go to the area to transport passengers. People outside of Guyana would not expect food or clothing from there for several weeks to avoid contamination. There were um, travelers from Guyana who were refused from hotels occasionally in other states in Brazil following the event because they might contaminate the hotel. So this is the kind of thing, this suspicion that everybody in Guyana was tainted somehow. Somehow. Radioactively. Um, the legal ramifications of of it... Um, in February 1996, which was obviously like 10 years down the line, um, Carlos Bezirel, uh, Crisere Castro Dorado, and Orlando Alves Texiera, who were the partners in this um, medical group that owned or that run, ran IGR, excuse me, and uh, Flamarian Barbosa Goulart, one of their associates, they were all convicted of manslaughter. And they ended up being sentenced to three years and two months imprisonment in open prison where they could serve the community. The thieves themselves, Roberto and Wagner, they were not charged with anything. Um, They were, um, I don't want to say they weren't to blame. They were obviously to blame for stealing. That they did. But... It seems like once it seems like nobody really blames them. Nobody says it's their fault. They need to be in jail. Um, when you read the reports, when you read news stories, when you read anything, nobody really seems to blame them, and for good reason. Um, as much as these two people, who you know, nobody disputes the fact that they robbed, that they stole, excuse me, from this uh, what was left of the institute. Uh, of IGR, they were not the ones at fault here. Um, the fact that they went in and they tried to steal parts, that's wrong. Um, you know, but they were doing what they could to survive. And, and the fact is that above all else, you know, above the fact, far above the fact that they, you know, that stealing is wrong and they shouldn't have done that, is that that teletherapy unit should not have been in that building. That that CCM-137 source should not have been in that building. And that seems to be the thing that everybody understands. Once they, um, you know, the authorities, people involved, the victims, everybody seems to understand that, look, Roberto and Wagner um, and Wagner did not, uh, were not to blame here. The people who were to blame 
were the um, were the folks who were running IGR and didn't make more of an effort to get that teletherapy unit out of there earlier. It was the people at CNEN who weren't keeping a closer track on what was going on and what was happening with this CC, CCM137 source. It was the government in Goiania who had a radioactive material source in their neighborhood in the middle of the city and didn't keep track of it. And, you know, everybody in these higher positions who should have been keeping track of this dangerous material wasn't. Everybody else dropped the ball and then Roberto and Wagner picked up that ball and went home. And they didn't know any better. It, to them, it was just a ball. But everybody else had kind of, you know, they knew that that, bomb, that that ball had a ticking time bomb inside. And they did nothing. And they didn't make more of an effort to protect the community. And so four people died. You know, a hundred people have died since then. You know, thousands were affected. Uh, people had amputations. You know, you had to destroy so much of the community. And just because these people were inept to the point of criminality, um, you, know, you get angry. The more you read information about this, you, you're not angry at Roberto and, and, and Wagner anymore. They were two men who were poor and they didn't have any money and they needed to you know, find some way to get money. And it's not a matter of, you know, there's always somebody who's like, oh, get a job. And it's, you know, when you're that poor, you know, finding a job is one thing, you know, you just need enough to get food or get gas in the car or to get to a job or, you know, little things like that, whatever it takes to just survive. You're not trying to live at that point, you're trying to survive. And they were at that level of poverty where it was, you know, it wasn't a matter of going out and taking that and buying, you know, you know, throwing that money away, it was, you know, they were buying things they needed to live. Um, so, you know, it was a matter of survival for them. It wasn't a matter of survival for um, the partners in IGR or, you know, the people in the government who should have been paying more attention to this. All of those people dropped the ball, screwed up, and it was their fault that these people died. Um, Roberto and Wagner's uh, guilt in this is, is kind of, you know, they get a very small piece of the pie and understandably so. Um, you know, nobody is saying, you know, that they were innocent, but the considerable ineptitude of everybody else involved is staggering. And it, it, it makes you worry. It makes you very concerned about, well, you know, if they're doing that in Brazil, you know, what are they doing in your neighborhood? What are they doing in, um, you know, what are they doing in your relatives' neighborhoods? You know, is this going on elsewhere? Is this going on with a radioactive material in, in your town? And as much as, you know, you want to say, well, it's another country, you know, you really don't have to worry about that. You know, we're much better about it here in America or Australia or um, Britain or wherever else you might live, you know, uh, where they might be handling this sort of material, you can, you, you know, you might want to convince yourself of that, but, you know, just because 
that's Brazil. It doesn't mean that it can't happen where you are. And so, you know, that's a worrisome thing with this is that, you know, here I am and I'm researching all this stuff on this disaster and going through other websites. And I just, you know, um, I was on one website that had an article. Um, I believe it was the interview with Roberto. Um, and on the right hand side, they kind of had links to other um, radioactive, uh, radioactivity, um, uh, accidents and radioactive accidents. And, um, you know, you had things like Three Mile Island and, and, and Chernobyl and, and, and it wasn't just, you know, in sort of these, um, developing areas or, or areas where there are a lot of poor people or, you know, corrupt governments or anything like that. You know, it's, it's places like America, it's places, like I said, Three Mile Island and you have, you know, uh, Chernobyl over here and you have, you know, um, I seem to recall um, some story about a a, a news story about a, a, a Boy Scout in America or an Eagle Scout in America who decided to get his Eagle Scout badge by building some sort of set of nuclear device in his shed. Um, you know, I this these are the kind of stories that you know they sound kind of you know haha really, but I mean that's the thing. Um, you don't know where this radioactive stuff is. And it starts to get you a little paranoid doing the research on this. Um, because yeah, for all that you want to say, okay, well, it's radioactive material. It's probably, you know, it's going to be in a nuclear facility. Well, it's not really, is it? I mean, this wasn't in a radioactive, you know, in a nuclear facility. This was in a hospital, a clinic, this was in, you know, it's a medical facility. A lot of this radioactive material is being used, uh, you know, in small amounts, but it's being used to treat cancers and treat other um, medical things. And so you kind of, um, you know, reading up on this disaster, um, like I said, a little bit of paranoia came out of this. I A little bit of me sitting here and thinking, Everybody in the area, every everybody's everybody's radioactivity is a radioactive material is accounted for, right? Um, so that is the story of the Goyanya accident. Um, it's tragic and it's terrifying. I think the 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 most upsetting part of it, at least to me, is just reading the story, the facts about the the little girl and and uh, Leide and and. Um, her funeral and and what that turned into rather than just the you know a, a funeral for a lost little girl it became something else um in terms of of um of what to do um after this um the international atomic agency report um which I almost saved to my Kindle. Um, the 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 report is actually really thorough. It's 157 pages, and it's practically, um, I want to say it's the main source for this particular podcast. It's probably about 90% of the source for this podcast, aside from the names of the people involved, which they really don't use because you know for privacy reasons. Um, they um. It's it's got pretty much all the information you could possibly want about the disaster. Um, there's a lot of you know there's recommendations obviously at the end of of um, you know the um, it basically boils down to um, 
people should be you know more well educated about the um effects of radiation and and the um uh, you know identifying radiation radioactive material but also you know but but first and foremost you know the government should be you know paying more attention to you know who has it you know who has radioactive material what's being done with it where it's being stored you know what happens when nobody's using it anymore um is it being returned is it being destroyed is it being handled correctly all of that is it being monitored because it's very very dangerous if it gets out there um but that particular um report i mean if you like reading that kind of thing i suggest reading that report because it's actually i mean in terms of of um these sort of um, accident reports, a lot of them can be very dry. That was actually um, a, a pretty interesting read, even for somebody like me who really doesn't have a very, I don't want to say very good grasp of radiation science, but um, and nuclear science, but I just, I, you know, it's not really my thing. Um, so it was kind of a little stumbling blocks here or there, but, um, I mean, the report has everything, maps and photos and autopsy reports on, on the victims, unfortunately, you know, uh, it's kind of unfortunate to read, but, um, you know, if you're interested in the subject, I highly recommend downloading it. It's very easy to find. It will be in the, the, um, episode notes, which should go up tomorrow. Um, but, um, you know, if you want to Google it before the notes go up on the blog, then they will um, be there. Uh, it's very easy to find in Google. As for next episode, um, I really don't know what disaster I'm doing. I had plans, um, but I wasn't really um, kind of, I don't want to say I wasn't excited about um, the subject um, I was thinking about doing, but I think I may choose something else. Um, so we'll see how it goes, but... Um, if anybody has any suggestions, I'm always open to suggestions in terms of episode subjects. Um, until next time then, stay safe.